0: Hello everybody and welcome to Mrs. G's Storytime. We are reading Whom God Has Joined by Isabel Kuhn with permission of OMF International and we are on Chapter 12, A Hard Day. A year had passed. Suddenly the way opened for us to leave Chinese work to junior colleagues, two young ladies who returned with us from that trip to Kuming. We were free to enter the Lisu work. As it would be very rough living, Mr. Fraser thought I ought to make a trial trip in to see the conditions before planning to move in permanently. Also, there was pressure on the new believers to plant opium in the Oak Flat area where Layla Cook worked alone. Alan Cook was six months north of her in the canyon, teaching and consolidating a new work there. A white man's present might remind the local feudal lord that he was going beyond the law in this persecution. So John and I prepared to go. Our three-year-old girlie would be left behind in Yangping, in the charge of our lady colleagues, one of whom was a nurse. She would receive every care, and we planned to be gone only a month. But it tore my mother's heart to pieces despite full confidence in my fellow workers. I walked out of Yangping weeping. You see, I was a softie. Mountain travel with my strong, young, capable husband, only 28 years old, was like another honeymoon. We took a route which led us up to the valley of Minkang, river which ran parallel to the Sunween in the northwestern Yan'an. At length, we came to a hamlet where there was no proper inn. Every traveler stayed in the big adobe farmhouse of the wealthiest inhabitant. It was a sooty, dirty place. In fact, we dubbed it the dirtiest inn in the world. We slept upstairs in the granary. Tomorrow we climb, said John, the biggest climb you've ever had. We ought to be on the road by six o'clock if possible, and we climb all morning. But when you reach the top, oh, what a view. You will see the Sanween Mountains from there. Just think, Belle, tomorrow you will see Lesulin. It's been ten years since I first heard of the Lissou tribe and felt called to minister to them. How I thrilled at the thought that tomorrow I would see the alpine land, even though from afar. But early the next morning, I woke with diarrhea and an upset stomach. Belle, John said in a pained voice, don't tell me we've got to stay another day in this place. No, I replied. If I picked up one germ here by sleeping one night, I maybe have two by tomorrow night. We don't stop for this. But it's the hardest climb till we reach the Selwyn. John groaned. How do you do it on an empty stomach and maybe with dysentery beginning? Well, I'm sure I want improvement by an extra day in this dirty place, I argued. Put me on my horse and then all I have to do is sit on it. And so we began, up and up, back and forth, as the trail zigzagged upward. About ten in the morning, we came to an abandoned tribal hut. Here, John said, let me make you a cup of cocoa. Do you think you can keep it down? I was chilled and faint and glad for a moment's rest from clinging to the animal. Glad for the warmth of the fire John built and glad when the hot liquid comforted my empty stomach, it stayed down. Then once more, I went on to the animal's back. The Ming side of the mountain was heavily wooded but it was interesting to note the different tree belts. On the lower slopes, we had passed through a feathery bamboo, which creaked loudly as the wind stirred its long tubular stems. Then tall pine trees with whispering tops awed us by their height. Still further up, the trees were even greater and older, but so hung with vines and mosses and ferns that I could not identify their kind. From the great branches, the vines fell in loops and festoons, perhaps 20 to 50 feet in tangled length. The sun hardly penetrated now, and it was getting colder. My promise to sit on the horse was not so easy to keep. Chilled, stiff, and weak, I felt my head begin to go round, and I had to pray for concentration to hold on. John watched me, anxiously, cheering me by assurances that the top was not far off now. Finally, with a lunge, my animal pulled himself up over a rocky ledge and stood trembling with relief on a level space. The top of the world. So it looked and felt. The sun drenched us with a welcome warmth. I was surprised to see that the other side of our mountain was as shown of tall timber as the Minkan side was shabby with it. Shrub oak and redundant bushes covered its steep sides and did not obscure the scenery. Far, far below us, like a doll's house, a large form caught our attention. See, Belle, said jubilant John, down there is a big house where we can cook dinner. Keep your courage up, but look... Pointed to the far distance where the dark purple peaks undiluted along the horizon. That is Lassoumen. Those are the mountains of the Sanguine Gorge. Tomorrow night we might be there. It was the most beautiful panorama and we were tempted to stay and look. But it was already noon and we had no place to cook food until we reached the farmhouse far, far below us. With a last longing glance, we began the descent. It was three in the afternoon before I had my first real meal that day. Luckily, this trouble of the morning seemed to have quieted down during my fast. Sunshine and only three o'clock in the afternoon. It was too much for a youthful energy. John had been talking to our Chinese farmer host. Say, Belle, you're not going to sleep here, are you? Why, we're not even down the mountain. I've been asking, and they say, Old the next village, isn't far away. Only about four or lie after you get down the hill. Let's go on and sleep there. It's a full day from there to Salween. If we sleep here, we won't make the Salween tomorrow. Now, John had misunderstood the garbled Chinese dialect of our host, who was not of pure Chinese blood. John thought he said three or four lie, when he really meant 30 lie. The same sort of thing that happened when we first went to Tali. If we'd been there three or four lie a little more than a mile, we would have been there in an hour or so. That is why I readily considered to leave the large, comfortable farmhouse and set out for the village of Old Nest. Once we had fully descended the mountain, we found ourselves in the bottom of a deep ravine, winding our way over and around rocks, a noisy stream beside us and no sign of human habitation anywhere. At the end of two hours, we were still in the depths of that rocky channel. Daylight was fading and a miserable rain had begun to fall steadily. I had packed my raincoat somewhere in our loads, so it was not long before I was soaked with the rain streaming off my sun helmet. John walked while I rode the animal. Still no sign of Old Nest or any kind of nest. It was then six o'clock by my watch. Belle, I pity you, said the repentant Johnny. Wouldn't you be better off if you were walking here with me? At least your blood would be circulating. I'm too exhausted to walk, dear. Sorry, you're right. I'm cold, stiff, and faint. Where is Old Nest? I must have misunderstood him, Belle. I'm so sorry. He must have said, San Sai, instead of San Si. You know how those half-tribal fellows often pronounce it like that. But it has got to be soon. Even 30 La has to end sometime. Perhaps it was 7 o'clock when we finally climbed a hill and arrived at the sprawling village. John led me to the big adobe house that looked prosperous, explained our situation to the owner, and with true Chinese hospitality, they invited us in. A huge wood fire soon blazed on our hearth, and I luxuriated in its warmth while my clothes dried out. A cup of hot tea was soon urged upon me, and then hot sugar water with chopped walnuts in it and a delicious Chinese meal was prepared. In two hours, I felt like a different person. I was the first white woman these people had seen, and the farmhouse was soon crowded with Chinese women and men looking at me and asking questions. John took the opportunity to preach the gospel to them. Chapter 13 A Glimpse of Storybook Land The next morning, we were up before daylight and on the road with the first beams of the rising sun. Traveling was hot and tedious. It would have been very hard if the vision seen on the mountainside had not encouraged our hearts. This dusty, torturous way was leading to the Salween. It had an end. This is what our vision whispered. Our feet stumbled over the rocky path, but our hearts followed the vision. At nighttime, we arrived where the vision had promised on the bank of the Salween. The entrance to that part of the which was uh, our home for so many years, is guarded by a little market town where three feudal lords had their yamen, official residence. It is named Luku, which translated means six treasuries. We were entertained by one of these lords who took us through his castle and showed us how he fortified it. That night after supper, John whispered to me to go with him for a walk on the mountainside. As night fell, the mountains of the opposite bank of the Salween became jet black towers. The pointed peaks pierced a dark sky spangled with brilliant stars. I was enthralled. Storybook land, I gasped. But soon the somber shadows of the opposite bank of the mountains were broken with the golden dancing spots of light. See that? John whispered. Those are the Les Sioux fires. Les Sioux villages. Belle, dear, you're in Les Soulin. I can never forget the thrill that went through me. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon a very high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. My flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 6 and 8. I was looking upon the fires of our Lord's other sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. John 10:16. For unknown centuries they have been forgotten and lay prey to every beast of the field and every demon of the devil's host. But now we have come to as under-shepherds. Our joy and fellowship with the Great Shepherd at that moment is too sacred to describe, but it was one of life's great moments. The next day brought a series of mountain climbs. By noon we were at the height of 2,000 feet above the Salween. John pointed to our afternoon road. We dropped down here, he said. Cross the stream at the bottom. Climb that set of hairpin turns to the level and height. With where we are now, go around the, the brow of that hill, and there is Pine Mountain Village in Leila Cook. I looked at the wild, chaotic pile of mountains, remembering the many days' journey between here and the Chinese civilization from which we had come. Heard in memory, Mr. Frazier say, she has not seen another white face for months, and my heart sank at Leila Cook's feet. We had wonderful fellowship together. The second day after our arrival, Mark of Gumu, with his two comrades and his challenging life story, arrived. This story is told in Nest Above the Abyss. By the third or fourth morning, John was feeling the need of exercise. I think I'll just go out and help those fellows work the garden, he said to me, disappearing through the door. Leila Cook and I were inside, busy about something, when suddenly we heard laughter, and then peals of laughter, and then gales of it. Layla got up and went to the door and looked out. Why, well, she explained, I was told there was a second side to John Coon that few people got to see, but I didn't believe it. Now I know. I went and looked over her shoulder. The two Lacey boys had been hoeing the rough mountainside preparatory to planting a garden. Now they were rolling on the ground, holding their sides with laughter. John, who could not yet speak Lacy, so could not yet talk to them, had taken the hoe. They had looked astonished, but yielded the implement to his request. Solemnly he raised it gave it a mighty whirl, and brought it down heavily, just missing the clod of earth aimed at. At first their laughter was comfort, but when his pandemonium made it obvious that he was just clowning for their benefit, the delight knew no bounds. From that day he became big brother, beloved and adored. Leila Cook was with us only long enough to explain that persecution of the church was undergoing because they refused to plant opium. Then she left us to rejoin her husband, who was in the Luda district, Six days' journey to the north. Moses, a tribesman who spoke Chinese, was our interpreter. Before she departed, Layla Cook said to me, as if it were a casual matter, Oh, by the way, Moses' wife is expecting, you know. I promised to help her. But if the baby comes before I return, you'll have to be in charge, I suppose. Oh, I cried aghast. I couldn't. I've never seen such a thing. I've had no training and I haven't had any training either, she replied. But there's no one else here to help her. A Lacey woman might be obtained, but they're not clean, you know. You and I at least understand hygiene. As far as not having seen a birth, you've had a baby, haven't you? Yes, I guess, but I, I wasn't taking note of the procedure. Well, there are some books on obstetrics in the lower shelf, Layla said, indicating her to a bookshelf. And to comfort you, none of her other babies have lived. They were all stillborn. So if this one is also, you need not feel it was your fault. But I wish for Moses' sake that this one could live. He would so love to have a child. Well, goodbye. We'll pray for one another, and off she went. I cannot describe my feelings. Remember, I'm a softie. The very idea of being responsible for a birth gave me cold chills. I seized the obstetric books. They were full of incidents of abnormal cases. The more I read, the more nightmares I got. And it was dear Moses' wife and baby. I met Moses before and had been deeply impressed. His breadth of brow betokened the usual intellect he possessed, but he was so humble and modest, always shrinking into the background. I had come to love him dearly in the Lord. There was an atmosphere of rest about him and the serene peace of a life abandoned to the Lord and governed by him. Yet he was born leader of men. When he conducted the singing in church, there was a grace of movement and a power to inspire that I have seldom seen equaled. Mrs. Cook had told me how the white people in Shanghai had been thrilled with him and wanted to give him gifts, white shirts, among other things, and we feared that he might be spoiled before he got back to those rough hills, she continued. But to our relief, he went right into the native homespun clothes. We've never seen a sign of those shirts. I've sometimes wondered what he's done with them. A few days after she left us, there was a baptismal service at Pine Mountain. Moses is a native pastor officiated. When he went down into the pool, he stood a moment and rolled up his sleeves. There, under that navy blue humspun, was a fine cambric cuff. Hastily he turned it back up and under, but I had seen it. He was wearing the western finery, but where it would not show, and his poor Laceu brethren would never be moved to envy by it. Do you wonder why we love Moses, and why I was to be the one? By bungling ignorance to cost him another child? The thought did not help to steady my nerves. Vainly, I hoped the birth would be postponed until Mrs. Cook got back. She had been gone perhaps ten days when Moses came to me. Big sister, he said, Grace is having a stomachache. Would you kindly come and see her? Quickly, I went up to their shanty, which stood on the slope just above ours. His wife, Grace, was crouched in the far corner of the room. She looked like a wild animal cornered by the inescapable, and she could obey no advice of mine. I gave all the medical counsel that had been given to me. She would act on none of it. She would not even talk with me. Well, we will get things sterilized and arranged Moses, I said, with my heart beating quickly. I have studied the medical books, and we must prepare. I named off the items. Also, we think the baby does better if it sleeps by itself. I added this doubtfully, but I knew the Lacey did not agree with us on this. I would like my baby brought up like your babies, he said quickly. Would this basket do for a baby bed? It was just right. Great joy I got material. Leila Cook had left at my disposal and fixed the basket up very prettily. Moses, usually so calm and deliberate, was obviously stirred and excited. All day we waited and nothing happened. I went to bed with my clothes on, expecting an early call. None came. Grace was still when I first saw her. She would not get up. She would not walk or exercise. She just crouched in the corner. As the day progressed, Moses got anxious. I could see it in his eyes. My eyes were nearly inflamed from poring over the medical books. They gave instructions for preparation, advice on reception and aftercare, but not a word on what to do to induce labor. By late afternoon, the concern in Moses' eyes haunted me. He never lost his slow, serene movements, but his eyes failed in that calm behavior. Isn't there a medicine you can give her to speed it up, Mama, he asked. I had prayed until I was nearly exhausted. John did not know any more than I did about what to do. But from somewhere in the past, I remembered someone saying something about using quinine. There's a medicine I think I heard once that someone advised. But, oh, Moses, I can't be for sure. No book tells me either. If it is a wrong medicine, it might kill her, and I don't know the dosage. I'm willing to try, the poor fellow said, his eyes pleading for help. Oh, Moses, you trust me too much. I'm not sure I heard it rightly. I was in agony of doubt. I tell you, let us pray about it. You go back and pray, and I will stay here and pray. After 10 minutes, come back, and we'll see how the Lord has led us. How I pleaded that the Lord would not let me make a mistake. Gradually, the conviction came that I should use a quinine in small dosages. When Moses returned, I asked him, what do you think? I think we should try that medicine, Mama. I I feel the same. All right, here it is. Now, Moses, we are going to give her one grain pill every half hour. You watch carefully. If you see any new development, call me immediately. With that, for the second night, I lay in my clothes. It was not yet midnight when I heard a knock come at our door. I was up in a moment. It was Moses. Please come, Mama. I don't know how I got up that dark mountainside. I was shaking from head to foot. Had I killed her? She was lying down this time, and I turned my flashlight upon her. In another moment, a little one was in my hands. It's dead, Moses said mournfully. Suddenly, a piercing wail rent the air. God uses the foolish things of the earth and had been merciful to this inexperienced nurse. A lovely baby girl whom they named Esther was soon clean and rosy, daintily wrapped up in her wee bed, sleeping peacefully. For the first and only time I saw Moses excited. His eyes shone like stars for joy. He ministered to that baby much more than to her mother. It was such a loving tenderness and lingering over her that it brought tears to my eyes. No sleep for him. Joy was his food and drink. He spent the hours while the baby slept writing letters to all his friends and relatives. He just wanted to tell everybody that this baby had lived. Do you have any tinned milk, Mama, he asked. I'd like to buy some. Baby Esther's mother cannot feed our child. I stared at him a moment and then pulled my face straight. I will gladly sell you milk, Moses, I said. But it is usual for the mother not to start feeding the baby until the third day. Oh, what a relief. Once more life was a joy, and he turned round to speed back to the young Madonna with this wonderful news. Baby Esther grew chubby and strong. She was not yet a month old, however, when a runner came from Allen's cook in the north. It contained a message something like this If Moses' baby had been born, please ask him to come up and help us here for three months. The work is spreading, so we need him. Oh, I cried to John. How cruel to ask Moses to leave just now. Three months. Well, he will miss all the first baby awakenings, the first smile, the first laugh. Oh, I can't deliver that message. But as it turned out, I was the one who had to do it after all. We were standing in the main room of our shanty. Through the open door, the beautiful snow-clad peaks of the opposite bank of the Salween jetted up into the blue, blue sky. As I delivered the message, Moses gave me one startled look and then turned and gazed at those steadfast sparkling peaks. Obviously, he was speaking in his heart with the Lord. As I watched, his face cleared and was sufficed with peace. Turning to me, he said quietly, I will go if the Lord wants me to go. It has been but a short struggle. The one big yes of utter consecration had been said some years before, so that further surrender of each new gift or joy from him did not consume much time or wrestling. I felt I was standing on holy ground and prayed within my heart, Lord, this is just one Lisu. If his race can produce such devotion, please take my life and use it in teaching them of you. Chapter 14, A Parting That Did Not Part The month we had promised to stay soon drew to its close, but the opium persecution affair was not yet settled. The Sioux Church desired that John stay on for a few more weeks. He wanted to stay on too, but I had promised the girls I would be back in about a month. It was already past that and there was no way to telegraph them of the delay. Neither could we tell them when the opium business would be settled. As a matter of fact, John would not get back until June. So I felt I must return to Yangping and relieve the young missionaries of my work so they could pursue their studies. It was decided that Ma Fu Ying go with me. He was an attractive Christian Chinese lad of about 20 who had come with us. He consented happily to be my escort back. John thought that there was a shorter route, than the one via Old Nest Village, but I would still have to cross the mountains. Few use that road, and I believe I am the only white woman who has ever been over it. It crossed directly to the Mekong Valley. Chinese market towns dot that road so it was easy to get food and lodging. I rode Jasper, a wiry old mule lent to us by Mr. Frazier. John and I will never forget that parting. My heart was torn between husband and child. I did not like to leave John, although our La Sioux friends would feed him well and care for him. And at the same time, I had never before been separated from Kathy, and I could hardly wait to get back to her. John did not like to see me go either, so he decided to ride with me to the top of Place of Action Mountain... ...which he reckoned would be about a half way along our first day's journey. The scenery was indescribably gorgeous. Higher up the mountain than the Place of Action Village was a village of golden bamboo where we had many Christians... So we had slept there the night before and climbed from there. The road went hairpinning back and forth, back and forth, each rise in altitude giving a further glimpse of mountain peaks behind that great summits which banked the canyon. I felt we were climbing to the top of the world. Mountain tops like the waves of the sea spread in all directions, but the sea troughs were the abyss of great depth. My heart trembled even as it thrilled. Then the path left the banks of the Salween and began to travel into one of the tributary rivers. But it still ascended. It was a mere cow path, which necessitated our going single file. At one place we skirted a great rocky knoll and jetted out over nothing. I closed my eyes lest the drop at the side of the path should unsteady me. It would be a fearful plunge over that edge. Till almost noon we rode. Then the path seemed to have reached the top of the range and looked level far on ahead. John reined in his horse. Well, Belle. I guess we part here, he said. A lump was in my throat, and I must go on alone now and leave him alone. When I have to face a separation which is painful, I have to get it over quickly. So when John called Ma Fu Ying, and the Laisu carry us together for a parting prayer, I was hoping he would make it short. Not so, Johnny. His disposition is quite different. Propriety is very important to him, and to hurry through such a separation is a shallow performance not worthy of a real Christian. So after a lengthy prayer, he raised his voice and began to sing. God be with you till we meet again. By his counsel's guide uphold you. With the sheep securely fold you. God be with you. Singing is just the last straw to me emotionally. The camel's back breaks every time. So when he plaintively continued, till we meet, till we meet, till we meet at Jesus' feet. Visions of all the awful things that might happen to dear hubby in that canyon before I saw him again harrowed me until I felt I could not stand it. But John went on, till we meet. I opened my eyes. Please stop it, I was going to say when I caught sight of the tail whisking around the corner. There was another objector. Jasper had jerked his head loose from Ma Fu Ying, who, with closed eyes, was valiantly trying to follow the song, with which he was not too familiar. When I saw Jasper, his hind legs and tail were waving a gay farewell, Back down over the trail we had just come, raced the animal, driving in front of him, John's mount also. John never did get the meat finished. I screamed and Ma Fu Ying, feeling a jerk on his head, came back to the earth, picked up his heel and started off in chase of Jasper and the other horse. It was such a delightful game to the mule. It was down the hill the whole way. Such a narrow road that Ma Fu Ying could not find no shortcut to steer him off. It was also such an untraveled road that there was nobody at all to stop him en route. Jasper and the horse raced gaily around the sharp corners, Mafuying after them, legs and arms flying like a windmill. Out of sight of his pursuer, Jasper could stop to nibble the delicious green grasses richly banking the wild path. As the human windmill turned the corner and came into view, off went the two animals again. Left horseless on that high trail, we waited for a while, and then decided to walk together back down the trail hoping against hope to meet Ma Fu Ying with subdued and repented Jasper in tow. No such good fortune. Hour after hour, we plodded on foot back over the way we had ridden. Finally, we came again to the banks of the Salween. Far down, almost to the golden bamboo village, we beheld Ma Fu Ying with Jasper in tow at last. But it was now too late in the day to proceed. That night, we slept in the same place from which we had left that morning. Now, don't you think it is a lord trying to persuade you to stay with me, suggested hubby, hopefully the next morning? No, said his stubborn spouse. I think it's a warning to you not to indulge in such long, drawn-out partings. This time, John decided not to escort me, but he took a seat on a big stone by the side of the road. As our party ascended back and forth over the hairpin turns, he became smaller and smaller, until he looked the size of a pinhead, just waving his handkerchief. The rest of the day's journey was lonely but grand. At the very top of the range, we came upon a little sun-kissed meadow where a sparkling, clean brook gurgled. A wonderful place for a camp. But we pressed on. Dusk was falling before we even began to descend. Finally, I got off the weary mule and stumbled down the mountainside with only pale moonlight to show the trail. We stopped for the night at the first village. The next day's journey was most pleasant. "'The road wound through rice fields beginning to show their emerald green "'and often by the banks of the blue Ming Kang River. "'Late that afternoon, we came to a small market town "'beside the first bridge we'd seen. "'Here there was a small inn with a stable in the inner courtyard. Ma Fu Ying came to me. "'Sumu,' he said, "'I don't think that stable will keep this mule inside. "'He's a devilish wise, you know. "'I've never met such an animal, "'and I have misgivings about what he'll do tonight. "'The owner of the place seemed to be a woman.' Dama, great mother. I said to her, haven't you a door for the stable? I fear our mule will get out if you haven't. Get out of my stable? Nonsense, she said. It has bars that are put across. Animals stay there all the time. Nothing ever gets out, but our mule is old and wise, and I fear those bars won't hold him. Can't you help us make it more secure? No need, no need, she said confidently. I'll guarantee he'll not get out if you've put the bars down. About three o'clock the next morning, I was awakened by the most fearful racket downstairs. An excited voice was swearing in a high-pitched tone. Something big was being whacked. It sounded like an elephant in a china shop. Suddenly, a shrill neigh awakened my suspicions, and I sat up in bed and called out, Ma Fu Ying? Soon, his slender form appeared in my doorway. He was shaking with suppressed laughter. Chinese oaths and swearing continued, mingled with whacks from below. "'It was Jasper,' whispered Mafer "'During the night, he lifted the stable bars off with his nose, "'strolled out to the courtyard, smelled Dama's big pan of bean curd, "'which she was made to sell in the market today. "'He went into her kitchen and eaten about half of it "'before she woke up and found him. "'It was an irate innkeeper who said goodbye to us after breakfast. "'Naughty as Casper was, "'I never forgot that that old mule did me one great favor.' Thereafter, whenever a painful and prolonged parting was in prospect, I only had to say pleadingly, John, please remember Casper. And next time we'll do chapter 15 and 16. 15 is the thing with the stuff in it. I love you. I'm praying for you. And bye bye for now.